So, um, as I said, we're going to start at Acts chapter 1. And then we'll give you a little bit of background about the book of Acts, about the author and some different things. Um, most people... Most people believe that Luke is the author of this book. And if you read through the book of Luke, this book picks up almost exactly where Luke starts. Luke himself was an educated man. We know several things about him. The verbiage that is used and the literary structures that he uses makes it almost obvious that he's the one that wrote this book. It so much aligns with the book that's in his name. Um, in the, in the first letter he wrote, in the Gospel of Luke, he explains the intent of his writings. In verse 1 of Luke, or chapter 1 of Luke, verses 3, four, three through 4, I'll get it out in a minute, I promise. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the certainty about the things you have been taught. Luke's gospel was uh, the product of deep investigation. He wanted the details right. He wanted it orderly, even in what he's writing to Theophilus here. And, and Luke, more than any of, any of the apostles, maybe except for if we talk about Paul, he was an educated man, a physician, a man of prominence, and he would understand how to write a letter to someone using the formatting uh, of that time. There's a way that letters are addressed, the way they begin, and he's very much within what we see in, in historical writings that way here. Um, he had the abilities, the opportunities to consult with many eyewitnesses of Christ's ministry and to consolidate their accounts. His ability to put that all together in a meaningful way was very much what he was all about. He spent more than two years during Paul's imprisonment at uh, Caesarea, and that's in Acts 24. And during that time, he would have been able to meet and interview many of the other apostles, eyewitnesses, people that saw things. Even we, we see that the wife of Herod Stewart, her name is Joanna, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, 3, we see her mentioned here as an acquaintance of his. So she must have been an acquaintance that was able to share the inside scoop, if you will, on the political stratus that was out there at this time. What are the officials saying about Jesus? What are the people of the Roman culture saying? And, and she would have been truly an ally there to, to do that. Related details only exist in Luke's recordings concerning um, Joanna, chapters, chapter 13, verse 31 through 33, and you can jot these down. I'll come to some here in a minute where we'll read them together, but also in chapter 23, and no doubt the information that he gained from the political environment came from Joanna. One thing I found very interesting in reading through Luke 1, 3 through 4, is he uses some verbiage here that, uh, honestly, it's been on my mind, and here I found it in Luke 1 and didn't even know it was there. 
so that you may know. <clears throat> so that you may know leaves no doubt. So that you may know affirms. So that you may know are words that are definite. There's no questions here. I know. In Exodus chapter 8, verses 10, and again in verse 22, we find this use. It says, that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. In verse 22, it says, so that you may know that I, Yahweh, am in the midst of the land. Exodus 10, that you may know that I am Yahweh. Job chapter 19, then be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, so that you may know there is judgment. We find it in Isaiah. We find it in Mark chapter 2. But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So that you may know. And the most popular one for me personally, 1 John chapter 5 verse 13. And it reads, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And we all go through times of doubt. And we all have times where we think, why would God choose me? Why would 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 he even consider me? But this is telling us so that we may know. It's definite. When you think about the Bible, and I spoke on this, I guess it was a couple of times ago, The so that you may know word applies to the Bible in general. God gave us the Bible so that we may know who God is. So that we may know what his attributes are. So that we may know what his will is. So we may know how salvation is found and where it comes from. So that we may know what he has done, what he is doing, and what he is going to do applies to this Bible. It is a revelation, special revelation from God the Father to us, his children, so that we may know. This book of Acts picks up exactly, and I said this earlier, where the Gospel of Luke left off. Jesus is offering a last set of instructions and words of encouragement before he ascends to the Father, to his apostles. The first two chapters show us that nothing will stop the Gospel message from going forth. Twelve people taking the Great Commission to the world forever. Not even the suicide of one of these apostles is going to stop this gospel from going forth. And you all know the story of Judas Iscariot. You would think a tragedy of that manner would be a roadblock. But they didn't even stumble. The message went forth. We will see Luke quickly transition from the ministry of Jesus Christ to the ministry of the apostles. And I say the ministry of the apostles because that's what it says here, the acts of the apostles. But I think we all know that it's still Jesus Christ's ministry through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And while the Lord's work of redemption is now done because he told us it is finished, the work of gathering the redeemed goes on. The proclamation of spreading the gospel and establishing Christ's church is passed on to these 12 men, these 12 apostles. And this work will continue until the last soul is saved. 
and until Jesus Christ returns. So understand something about these apostles. This is a group of fallible men. They were far from perfect. Most of them blue-collar workers, many of them fishermen even, which was kind of the lowest of the low. And they showed signs of being fearful at times. They were disobedient at times. They were especially impatient at times. And in order for them to accomplish this task, and I want you to think about this task, 12 men going out to the ends of the earth in a day where they didn't have a car, they didn't have a cell phone, the internet, all these luxuries that we have today, and they're going to spread this message out across the earth, and it's going to last forever. So when you think about these fallible men and all the things that they have struggled with along the way, how on earth are they going to be able to do that? Something has to change about these men. They're going to spread the saving message for all time. And it's going to be a daunting task. I can't imagine starting, pick any 12 people you want to, and we're going to start a business And none of us really know a whole lot about the business, but we're going to make it last forever, and it's going to spread. It's going to franchise all over the earth. That's what we're talking about here. Spreading the good news to all the earth, something would have to happen to these apostles to provide them with the knowledge, the courage, and the patience to do this. And if we were reading a play script here, this is a spot where we would say, "Enter, enter the Holy Spirit. So, bearing these things in mind, let's stand and turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 1. And I'm going to read God's inerrant and infallible word. I'm going to do verses 1 through 8. The first account, O Theophilus, I composed, and he's referring back to the Gospel of Luke about all that Jesus began to do and teach. I composed those so that you would know what he had begun to do and what he's going to teach. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs appearing to them over 40 days and speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons. Some of your translations may say epics there. But it's not for you to know this. Which the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. And you may be seated. And I'm going to pray. 
Holy Father in heaven, we come before you this evening seeking clarity concerning your word and help us not only to understand but to believe in depths and ways that we've never believed before, Lord. Help us to grow in you. I thank you for each family represented here this evening and ask you, Lord, that you will bless them richly for their dedication in attending this assembly. I ask that you have your way this evening and that your message will come forth. Please get us out of the way and let your spirit help us to understand what your word says. Lord, once again, we just thank you so much for showing us the grace and mercies that you have in our salvation. And as David repeated in the Psalms, Lord, keep us close to you. Protect us as only you can. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. So this is the first account, or the the first account was the Gospel of Luke. And in verse 1, we have Luke explaining to Theophilus that the previous letter and book that Luke had sent him was to explain what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was teaching. And the first question that I had here is, who on earth is Theophilus? Because you don't see this name anywhere else, and I haven't heard our pastor teach on him recently. And, and when you read through the Bible, there's no clear indications of who he was. But if you really search through what we do know about him, we know we can find out that his name means friend of God. I don't really believe in coincidences. I believe this guy, he must have been a friend of God. And because Luke has written both of his his books, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, to him, I think it's safe to say that he was a believer. He was a follower of Christ. Luke 1.3, Luke addresses Theophilus as most excellent Theophilus. And this was a formal greeting for people of prominence. We, we can find uh, in the book of Acts, Paul himself has a meeting with Felix, and he, direct, he addresses Felix this way, most excellent Felix. And Felix was a governor in Caesarea. So thinking this through, it should be safe to assume that Theophilus was a man of influence, a man of prominence. He may have held some kind of seat in the governmental cabinet, some kind of official perhaps. And since we know that Theophilus being a man of influence and having many people looking up to him, if you will, because of his prominence, it would only be natural for Luke to want someone like that to have the gospel in his hands and have it presented to the people from an authoritative position. I mean, we noted in the introduction of this teaching, we saw that Luke himself had other high-ranking officials and acquaintances. Joanna was the wife of Herod Steward. And we know that there had to be some information passed between the two of them. And here in verse 1, Luke is simply recounting to Theophilus why he wrote the first book. He wanted Theophilus to know all that Jesus began to do and teach. And what did Jesus teach? Jesus taught the disciples by word and deed the truth necessary to carry on his work. So what did he do? Primarily that on the cross, Christ finished the redemptive work and provided a pathway to salvation. 
But while, the, while this work may be ending, he is only starting to proclaim the glories of, of, of what is to come. Verse 2 begins to explain these glories, and it reads, Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. And I'm going to stop there, and I'll come back into this verse when we go into 3, so that th- 3 will make sense. The taken up to heaven, I think we all know that he's referring to the ascension of the Father and ascension to the Father in heaven, and he's sitting at the right hand of God. We find that in Luke 24. And Luke uses this term three other times in verse 9, verse 11, and 22. And it's almost as though he uses it to describe the end of Christ's earthly ministry. Um, the summary of this letter. And the beginning of the new letter, when when you go from Luke to Acts, it tends to split off in verse 2. This is where Luke stops, the earthly ministry. This is where it starts, stops. And this is where the apostles' ministry starts. Because we have here, by the Holy Spirit, in which he chose them, um, chose the apostles, And it's easy for us to recognize that the apostles needed the leading of the Holy Spirit. One question that really weighed heavy on my mind, and I'm going to go out on a little bit of a tangent here, so you bear with me. I struggle to understand why Jesus Christ needed the Holy Spirit to do work for him. I mean, he's God, right? 100% God. And, And I really struggled with that for a while. Why would he need the Holy Spirit so often in his life? After all, he's God. Yes, he's also man. We call him the God-man. Some of the theologians use this term God-man because he's 100% God. He's 100% man. But it's really strong. Why does he need the Holy Spirit? So the Holy Spirit was the source and power of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. Over and over again, we find the scriptures explaining that Jesus did this and Jesus did that. And this happened through the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 4. He's going to be tempted by Satan. Verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Matthew 4, 1. Matthew twelve eighteen even quotes the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 42. But Matthew twelve eighteen says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So whether he was preaching in in Luke chapter 4, performing miracles in the book of Matthew chapter 12, while he was being our sacrifice on the cross, Hebrews chapter 9, he was dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit. There was a union there in this this Godhead between the Spirit and Christ. You can even find the scriptures where it talks about how as he aged, he matured and he learned and the Holy Spirit helped him to understand. Now, if you go digging into the Bible and try to find a clear explanation of why this is, you're probably not going to find it. I couldn't. It's, It's worth a search. But when I, I really, you know, 
you pray about these things and you ask for clarity. And where I've landed here is, is that his earthly existence as being 100% God and 100% man, the 100% man part of this dichotomy must require the Spirit's power. And this could be viewed as being necessary as an example for us that we should lean on the Holy Spirit's power and understanding. <clears throat> I mean, if this is not true, how else could we have an example in Christ where the scripture reads that he has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin? That's in Hebrews chapter 4. And just to get your thoughts flowing here, some things to consider is that the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead. That's in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Here's one that shocked me, and I've read this verse so many times, it's scary. Jesus Christ was justified. His words vindicated. 1 Timothy 3.16. Jesus Christ was adopted. All these salvation doctrines that we have, have heard Josh bring to us. Christ was adopted in Psalm 2 verse 7 and Romans 1 verse 4. He's going through the things that we go through. Christ was fully sanctified. We're not fully sanctified yet. We're going through this growing process where that we read, we pray, we learn, we apply. We read, we pray, we learn, we apply over and over and over again. And we mature as Christians going through this. But Christ was fully sanctified, and that's in Romans chapter 6. And you'll find it again in John chapter 17. This one won't shock you. Christ was glorified. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the Holy Spirit has done these things not only for Christ, but he has done them, he is doing them, and he will do them for us. That's our promise. We think about the resurrection, and we think because he was resurrected, we, the believers, will be resurrected like him, and that's the way it is taught. But apparently, when you look at these things, it's not only the resurrection. We're going to be more in the image of Christ as we mature. The Holy Spirit's work upon Jesus Christ equipped him for his work as the only redeemer of God's people. The only one. So, so I've rambled out here a little bit. We, we go back to verse 2. That verse closes with, had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. The Lord sovereignly chose these apostles for salvation and service. He knew exactly where the, who they were when he picked them. He knew what their experiences were. He knew what their life was like. And he picked them anyway. One of them was a zealot. If you don't know what a zealot is, take time to look that up. Basically a murderer. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here about Christ choosing the apostles. But I would like you to give some thought to Christ choosing Judas Iscariot. 
Because he knew he was going to betray him when he picked him, right? And I'm thinking to myself, if I was building the team, the last person I'm going to pick is somebody that's going to betray me. But yet he did it. And he did it because he was going to betray him. The scriptures have to be fulfilled. Psalm 41 verse 9 tells us that Judas Iscariot, and he doesn't doesn't use that name, but that he is going to betray Christ. And that's in Psalm 41 9. Another item worth noting at this point, the verbiage that Luke uses as he goes through the book of Acts When he's talking about the twelve, he uses the word apostle. These twelve were the teachers, they were the preachers, they were the message deliverers. When he talks about the followers of the apostles, and there were many, we hear numbers like thousands and five hundred and different numbers in here, we don't know what a total is. But when he talks about disciples, he's referring to those that are being taught by the apostles. The apostles were disciples. But the disciples weren't necessarily one of the apostles. Okay? So I'm going to move on to verse 3 here, but I told you I was going to back up. Because you have to have have part of verse 2 here to to really understand 3. This is after he had had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them for over 40 days and speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. Of course, to whom you know now because we went back, this is the apostles and the disciples. Presented himself alive becomes... uh, becomes quite a statement. Jesus Christ appearing to the the apostles was a requirement of whoever it was that they were going to choose to replace Judas Iscariot. They had to have seen him after his resurrection. The emphasis is placed on the candidates to be considered. And we'll discuss Matthias replacing Judas later in this study. There are a number of passages where his appearing after the resurrection are explained. The book of John has some. Chapter 20, verse 14, we have Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Chapter 20, verse 19 through 29, appearing to the apostles in the locked upper room. And I know you all have read this. I know you've seen it. And, And the way this reads, Christ appears to them in this locked upper room. They had locked themselves in this room, and I'm assuming it's the same one they gathered in before Christ was crucified for the Passover. But they had locked themselves in this room because they were in fear. The Jews were looking for them. All right, we got Jesus. Now where's all those people? So they're locked in a room, and Christ appears to them. It doesn't tell us that he knocked on the door, and they said, who is it? He said, hey, it's Jesus. Let me in. It's not what it says happened. It says that he appears to them as though he solidifies from nothing and he's just there with them. Jesus appears to the apostles in chapter 21 of John and he even serves them breakfast. 
from fish that he told them how to catch, said, throw your net on that side of the boat. And he ate with them just to prove to them that, hey, I'm alive. Not only am I talking to you and you can see me, I'm going to eat. I'm going to eat with you. So, so this was, was very much a, an act to prove that he was alive. <clears throat> I think that Paul gives us a list of occurrences that are probably the best ones in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 through 8. And if you will, turn over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 5 through 8. A very comprehensive list, and it's almost as though it's almost as though Paul is sitting before a judge saying, Here's my evidence that Christ is alive. And, and the judge asks him, Okay, what is your evidence? And he said, I've got all these witnesses that saw him. And, he, and, the, and it reads 15, 5 through 8. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of who remain until now. So he's saying some of these people are still alive. Even the majority of them are alive. We can call them in if we need to. But he does admit but some have fallen asleep. Which is a reference to passing away. Verse 7 says after that he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me also. Paul, in this last verse, in verse 8, <clears throat> is showing some level of grief here. The persecutor of the church wasted a good portion of his life fighting against Christ, persecuting the church, held the coats of the people while they stoned Stephen, we'll find later. And, and he's feeling a bit... Sad. He's upset that why did I do those things when I could have been serving him? Last of all, as to one untimely born, it kind of struck me funny of Jimmy Buffett, of all things for me to speak about over this pulpit, <clears throat> has a song, and I don't even know the name of it, and I'm not going to look it up, but one of the verses in it says, Yes, I am a pirate. Born 400 years too late. I think Paul is feeling a little bit of this here because of his denial. Christ even talks about him. Why are you kicking against the goads? Paul has regret here. So I'm, I'm going to move on here. We, we have verbiage here that says appearing to them over 40 days, and I've got to ask you a question. What is it about this number 40? What is it about this number 40? Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, right? Noah saw 40 days and nights of flood and rain. Jesus fasted for 40 days before being tempted by Satan. When Moses received the Ten Commandments, he spent 40 days with God on the mountain. Elijah went on a 40-day journey to visit Horeb. And I racked my brain trying to figure out what is it about this number 40. And I had commentaries that I'd bothered, borrowed from Josh and had my own and finally ordered one and, and it came in 
when I came to this verse, it had just a little clause in there that said it's highly expected. And we really think, so there's some assumption here, that when the number 40 is used, there is a time of preparation going on. Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, preparing to go into the promised land. Noah, 40 days and nights of flood and rain, preparing to go into a world where wickedness has been banished. Jesus fasted for 40 days before being tempted by Satan. Preparation, right? Moses, 40 days with God on the mountain. Preparation to go back to the people. So I, I, I like that. You take that for what it's worth. But I'm convinced there's some truth in that. And that's not all the verses that have the number 40 in it. The verse goes on and says, concerning the kingdom of God, and this is probably the hardest part of what I'm going to speak about here tonight because the kingdom of God has been debated many times and for many years. How many kingdoms of God are there? Is there an Old Testament kingdom and a New Testament? Is there an earthly kingdom and a heavenly kingdom? And and there's a lot to be read and studied about the kingdom of God out there. And I'm not going to stand here and try to convince you one or the other is better because I think there's an element of truth in all of them. But I personally lean more toward one kingdom that God has ruled over since the beginning and will rule over for eternity. Isaiah 9, chapter 6 and 7, a very familiar verse, particularly around Christmas time. For a child will be born to us A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. That sounds like one kingdom to me. John MacArthur had stated that this expression in Acts is referring to a sphere of salvation where the gracious domain of divine rule over believers' hearts, and I have no problems agreeing with that. In verse 4 it says, And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said you heard of from me. Jesus commands the apostles not to leave Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes. These same apostles have struggled with similar commands before. We remember when Christ went into the garden to pray, he said, you guys wait here and pray. I'm going to go over here and pray. And Christ goes over here and prays, and when he comes back, they're asleep. And even one gospel says that, hey, you know, what, what are you guys doing? I just want you to, to pray and pray, and I'm going to go back over here. And he comes back, and they're asleep again. Disobedience. The Lord Jesus Christ himself told them, stay here and pray until I come back in a few minutes. And they went to sleep. 
However, they were obedient this time, and they remained in Jerusalem. And, and this is in Jerusalem is where the worldwide launch of Christ's gospel is going to take place. It's going to begin at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And for some reason, when I've read through chapter 2, and I'm not going to disturb any of this uh, at this time, but I always kind of thought of the Pentecost being like at a tent revival out in the country somewhere. I don't know why. It doesn't explain it that way. It tells me plainly. This was in Jerusalem. This is the populace. This is the hub of, of all the things that are going on in Israel. And they're going to launch the church right here. Not running afraid from the Israelites. They're going to launch the church in Jerusalem. The coming of the Holy Spirit had been promised numerous times. Christ had promised it in Luke chapter 11, again in John chapter 7, and John chapter 14. And um, one I noted that I'm going to read is in John chapter 16, verses 5 through 15. John 16, 5 through 15. <clears throat> but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, and this translation says the advocate, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. And he will take of mine. And I will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine. And will disclose it to you. These verses we. Particularly in this translation. Uses this word advocate. <clears throat> He uses the word advocate to describe the Holy Spirit. And then I had to, had to ask myself, what, okay, what does advocate mean here? What is the Holy Spirit doing to be my advocate? Now you can get your Merriam's-Webster dictionary out, and there's a number of definitions there. One of them says, one who defends or maintains a cause or a proposal. And that you don't have to twist that much to make it fit. And it says, one who supports or promotes the interest of a cause or group. And, and I believe that one fits. The third one I came to really sold me. Okay, it says, one who pleads the cause of another. The advocate pleads the cause of another. And then obviously all these can fit, but this last one really has the context. And I'm going to have you turn with me to a very, very known set of scripture and I'm not going to try and change anything you know 
But I want you to understand the context of what this verse says. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And it'll be verses 26 through 28. And I'm going to read verse 28 first. Because that is a very popular one. Verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And that is the verse that we use when... We're grieving when some tragedy has happened. You have been wronged somehow. All this is going to work out to good somehow. Verses 26 and 27 tell us why. 26 reads, And in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, And the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. Knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 26 says, we don't know how to pray as we should. How many of us have not been in prayer And come upon this stumbling block where that we run out of words. How many of us have not struggled with our prayer life? Where we know what we want and we go there, but we have no idea of what we need. I know I want this to stop, but I don't know why. And the Holy Spirit intercedes in our prayer life when we pray. He carries that prayer to the Father and he intercedes for us in that transmission. Not that God didn't already know. And I have to use my imagine and think about what does that actually look like? I mean, I know I can't see the Holy Spirit. I, I, I get it. But I can only imagine the Holy Spirit approaching God saying, Well, you know old Richard down here. He's praying, and he's got this thing going on, and he's asking us to do this and that, and he just doesn't see the big picture, and he doesn't, doesn't know what he needs, and he doesn't know how to pray, and we need to give him what he needs. That's what he's really praying for. He's a believer. He's one of ours. So they give me what he needs. And you're like, This is not what I asked for, right? And a month down the road, you look back at it and you say, he did exactly what needed to happen. I got what I needed, not what I asked for. That's what a loving father does. He gives you what you need. So I don't want to destroy that verse, and I've used it out of context many times. But this verse 28 is connected to your prayer life. So just be aware. According to Joel Beakey, isn't that a funny name? B-E-E-K-E. Beakey is how it's pronounced. It says, the prayers of God's people apart from the Holy Spirit would be no more effective. And the word he actually uses 
efficacious, and I can't even say that correctly, but it means effective than the prayers of mere pagans. Our prayers would have no effect within ourselves. The Holy Spirit helps us with the effectiveness of our prayers. And Luke now turns to a baptism of the Holy Spirit in comparison to the baptism of John the Baptist to further assure Theophilus and us of the Holy Spirit's presence. And if you go back to 4, he's talking about the promise, the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And this is a verse that our charismatic churches in the area and across the nation have taken so far out of context that it's heretical. And I say that boldly. Many of the charismatic churches believe in a separate baptism in which you have to have this baptism in this baptistry so that you can receive the Holy Spirit. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will receive the gift of tongues. And it's at that point that you're truly saved. And I don't know where they get it. I have tried to find some inkling of a notion in this Bible somewhere that teaches anything remotely close to that, and it teaches the opposite. John's baptism dealt with immersion in water. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a believer being filled. And the word submerged is used here, but it's in a, in a, in a context of like a vessel or a bucket that you dump it down in a pool and you would pull it out and it would be full of water. Be full of the Holy Spirit. And what they're teaching is you have to be baptized to receive this. It's literally demonstrated on the day of Pentecost, and I said I wasn't going to dwell in there too far, but on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. Hundreds are saved. They have the indwelt Holy Spirit, and I don't have a record anywhere that says any of them had to be baptized to receive anything. Nowhere. But yet we have the charismatic church out here teaching you have to be baptized to receive the Holy Spirit. The Apostle John himself clearly instructed everyone that Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And it's clearly stated that it's Jesus that does this. And if any other pastor or apostle or any of the people in the Bible, if any of them would have been able to baptize in the Holy Spirit in such a manner as what they're teaching, John the Baptist would have been able to do that. But he claims, uh-uh-uh, that's not me. How can any John Doe pastor at our neighborhood charismatic cultic church perform a baptism such as this. Here again, my opinion, they're trying to do a work that is specifically ascribed as a work of Christ and Christ alone, and that makes it heretical. It's not supported in the scripture anywhere. We're not informed of Paul being baptized in this fashion, nor Matthias, who will be selected to replace Judas. There's just nothing here to support that teaching. Verses 6 and 7 read, So when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons 
which the Father has set by his own authority. And the vast majority of the Jews in that time expected the Messiah to return. They were expecting the Messiah to come. And they were expecting that he would reestablish Israel as the superpower that they had once been. They were looking forward to the days like David and Solomon had had when they were kings. They wanted the prominence of Israel to stand and get the Romans out of town. They wanted a warrior to come in. They did not recognize the need to be saved from their sins. All they knew was they wanted to rid the nation of the Romans. And this is why so many people the Jewish nation did not receive Christ as the Messiah. He was not a God of their choosing. He was not a God of their desire. In verse 7, the times and seasons refer to events, eras, features. I mentioned earlier some translations have the word epics in there, E-P-O-C-H-S, I think is the way it was spelled. And I've always held that, that when Jesus tells people that no one knows the day or the hour, he's not just talking about a day on a calendar or a time on a clock or a watch. He's talking about a wider gamut of things. Not only are you not going to know the day and the hour, you're not going to know what it looks like. It's going to come as a thief in the night. So I think there's, there's more to what he's saying there. I think he's saying that, that much of the kingdom reign will not be understood until all things are laid open. I think some things he tells us to watch for. When you see this, look up for the time draws near. How that's actually all going to, and Jackie talks about the pan theory, and they get tickled talking about eschatology. She says it's all going to pan out at the end. But I, I think there's some level of truth in there's some things that we just won't know until it's laid open to us. Verse 7 closes discussing the Father's authority. And I challenged myself to define the authority of God, and I ended up all over the Bible. I mean, it just... And, and I found it really interesting that when you read about the authority of God, it uses governmental type language. I'll read through some of this for you. Romans 13.1, there is no authority except from God. Authority. Psalm 103.19, his kingdom rules over all. Governmental language, rules. Psalm 47, 2 and 8, the great king over all the earth. Monarchy. King. Daniel 4, 25, the most high is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind. Isaiah 45, 21, there is no other God besides me. Psalm 83, 16 to 18, we have Asaph crying out to God to dispose of the enemies of Israel. And, and a Christian friend of mine gave me a commentary on the Psalms that was written by Charles Spurgeon. I think it's actually called the Treasury of David is what it's called. And, and I read in here about this Psalm. And he states that this is written to display that when God's enemies hear about the Lord's marvelous deeds in defeating this large army... <clears throat> the heathen would be compelled to acknowledge God's greatness. The Lord is the most high. He who is self-existent is infinitely above all. The earth is only his footstool. 
The godless disregard this, but at times his wonderful works compel even the most unwilling to adore his majesty. In verse 6, the apostles ask Jesus about the time of the kingdom. In verse 7, he rejects speculation about times altogether. He basically tells them, it's none of your business. And in verse 8, Jesus returns them to the relevant subject at hand, the spreading of the gospel of Christ to all the nations forever. And it reads, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. I think the apostles had already seen the Holy Spirit at work. Right? It seemed the dead raised. It seemed people healed. They had seen people possessed with evil demons and those be cast out. Because we talked earlier about the Holy Spirit working in Christ, right? And soon they would receive this indwelling presence within their own bodies in a new dimension of power for witnessing. And who or what is a witness? A witness is a person, obviously, that tells the truth about Jesus Christ. A witness is a person who is concerned about man's destiny forever without Jesus Christ. A witness is a person willing to pay a social cost when sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You start sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, you really run out of the same group of friends you used to run around with or the people that want to be in your company. It's interesting, the word witness actually derives from the same word that our word martyr comes from. And it's quite fitting since this was the common price paid for people who witnessed for Jesus Christ. All of the original apostles but one were martyred. John died of old age in a prison, so I think we could call him a martyr, but he was not executed according to the historical writings. And the word witness has a legal slant to it. In a court of law, we would hear a judge say, okay, bring forth your witnesses. And, and the witnesses would come forward, and what do they give in the court of law? They give their testimony. We have a testimony to give as well. The last part of the verse is basically a repeat of the Great Commission. The geographical outline here in Acts 1 verse 8 provides a rough outline of the entire book. Jerusalem is covered in chapters 1 through 7. Judea and Samaria are covered in chapters 8 through 12. The ends of the earth are covered in the last from 13 to the end, or chapter 28. And they've been given a mission to spread this gospel to all the ends of the earth forever. Twelve common men are about to embark on a historic, challenging journey, a history-changing tour they're going to go on, a journey that created this very church that we're sitting in tonight. Twelve men who were willing to give their very lives for the risen Savior. It's recorded that all but one were martyred, and I I told you that just a minute ago. And the amazing thing is, is that if any part of this 
had not been true, had not been real, there would have been one of those 11 that were executed that would have spoken up and would have said, wait just a minute. I must confess that I was going along with the story. I don't really believe all that because they would have gotten fearful at the point of death if any part of this had not been real. The simple fact that they were all executed and died in the name of Christ proclaims the reality of this that they held in their own hearts. Because of their work in that day, we are honored to sit here in this house, this house of worship this evening, and hear, hear the words of God's word concerning their works. So I encourage each of you to search your souls. If you find yourself void of the Holy Spirit, turn to the cross today. There are any number of us sitting here this evening that would love to discuss this, should you have that need. Father, thanks once again for your word and your son and your Holy Spirit. Please, please use the words spoken here this evening to reach into each of our hearts. Help us to understand what it is like to have the faith of these faithful apostles, men who gave their lives for you. Thank you, Father, for their faithfulness. Thank you, Father, for the time we had with our brother Don who graduated into your heavenly kingdom. Comfort his family, Lord. I know they're going to miss him severely. Protect us, Lord. Father, I pray that you will deliver us home safely and that you'll lead us back here at the next appointed time. Once again, we love you, and we pray this in the precious name above all names, Jesus Christ, and all God's children said, amen. And you are dismissed.